0: Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, who exactly is behind those
1: inflammatory attack ads? Cities in chaos. Billions in property damages. Lives of families destroyed. Stop the woke war on police. Stop the radical left-wing love affair with criminals.
0: And that's one of the more tame ads. We'll take a look at the mysterious group funding the advertising blitz as the campaign season starts to heat up. Plus, an examination of the polls. After some high-profile failures in 2016 and 2020, can we trust them? And Russia seems to have found an ally for its war in Ukraine. And a check-in on the midterm elections. Do Democrats now have the momentum? All of that is coming up this hour, but we begin with this. Queen Elizabeth has died. The longest-serving monarch in British history was ninety-six. She ruled for more than 70 years. That was the shocking news Thursday evening in London. Elizabeth held the throne since 1952, overseeing a period of massive change for both the UK and the world. Joining us now is ABC's Ines de la from London, and I suppose the first question is, for what will the Queen be remembered most?
2: So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to say. There is so much, I think, that she'll be remembered for. I think the fact that she was Britain's longest-serving monarch is probably the, the biggest thing uh, that comes to mind. She was on the throne for 70 years. Um, but as we heard from uh, King Charles during his first speech, his first address to the nation as king, uh, she was someone who really devoted her life to the crown and to her country. And that's uh, something else I think that'll really be remembered, you know, in addition to those 70 years, the length of time, just the, the, the way she devoted herself um, to her country. She really put uh, her country above uh, everything else. Um, you know, just to, to think that the last time we saw her in public was on Tuesday when she uh, met the uh, new British prime minister. So she was uh, working up until the, the very end. So that was her last public appearance. was Tuesday. Then Wednesday, she had to cancel an appearance because of her health, and then of course she passed on Thursday. So yeah, it just goes to show how how um, how devoted she was to her country.
0: And that's likely to be her legacy. I think is this devotion to duty, and it, it it's something she really took to heart from the very beginning. Because when she took the throne, she was in her mid twenties.
2: That's right. Yeah, she was. Uh, it was it was after her uh, father passed away. Uh, she was uh, twenty five when she she uh, took over, um, and and she was then on the throne for 70 years. I was here covering the Platinum Jubilee, marking her 70 years on the throne, uh, you know, earlier this summer, and uh, and, and that was a big celebration. Um, You know, I think it was also a bit that that there was a bit of a a, a weird feel to it, and that I think it was also, um, you know, people certainly celebrating her legacy, but it, it did have a feeling that people were also saying goodbye, and it was the nation collectively celebrating the Queen, knowing that she was 96 and that she probably didn't have a whole uh, lot of time left. She had to cancel a number of appearances during the, the Jubilee because of her mobility issues. Um, so, so it was the nation really giving her a, a send-off.
0: How are the Britons reacting to this news?
2: So, uh, you know, it's, it's a sad time here in, in the UK. Uh, I was at outside of Buckingham Palace all day today. Uh, and Even in the rain, people were holding a uh, vigil. People were bringing flowers. Some broke out into song. Um, you know, people but stopping just to, to kind of pay their respects um, to take a moment to, to reflect, um, she's the only monarch they've ever known for many, right? So, so that they're, they're losing kind of a, a big important presence in in their lives. So. Um, no it's, it's you know, there, there are big billboards all around the the, the, the city uh, with, with her image thanking her for her service. Um, interesting moment though when we saw the uh, now King so King Charles coming to uh, meet some of the people who had gathered outside of Buckingham Palace so he shook hands he was giving flowers people um, expressed the, the, their condolences um, but, but it was a very warm welcome. so King Charles is someone who wasn't necessarily you know always the most popular figure in the UK after everything that happened with Diana. That has changed in recent years. He's become more and more popular. And certainly what we saw today was a very warm welcome from per- for Prince Charles, and, and the people I spoke with outside of Buckingham Palace say they are excited for him, as sad as they are, you know, they're, they're grieving that the loss of their queen, um, but they're also excited uh, for, for his reign and for what he will bring to the table.
0: We'll have more on uh, King Charles III coming up in just a second, but Queen Elizabeth was the head of state as the monarch, but politically under the UK parliamentary system, she didn't really wield a whole lot of direct power, did she?
2: That's right, I mean, so, uh, you know, she, she, she directly didn't, but she did, you know, meet with uh, the prime ministers, uh, constantly. And, and she's, uh, you know, lived through, uh, 15, uh, different prime ministers and she had their ear, um, you know, and, in, and in, in depending on uh, who the prime minister was, they had, um, warmer warmer or colder relationships, but she certainly, um, is a, a presence. She is involved, uh, and, or was involved. And, um, so, so even though she didn't have a whole lot of, you know, direct power, um, she, she, she's still uh, very influential. Now
0: for those of us here in the States, the idea of someone being born into power, ruling a country simply by birthright, very antithetical to our ideals. Some even find that idea patently offensive, especially since the royal family is supported in their wealth by taxpayer money. But this idea is starting to permeate British society as well, isn't it? As many see the monarchy as something of an arcane relic.
2: That's right, yeah. There are those who feel that it's uh, you know outdated, that it's time for uh, England uh, and the UK to to move on. I think that's why uh, those who uh, you know like the monarchy are um, so enthusiastic about Will and Kate because they kind of breathe new life in into the the monarchy. Um, but but uh, I think overall, you know what I've seen as an American here covering the, the Jubilee and now the, the, the Queen's passing, uh, what's 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 very nice, I will say about the the, the monarchy is is the fact that um, she is a the queen and, and now King Charles that the, they're figures that unite the country um, and and certainly so when you talk to people who support the the monarchy, that's how they feel that uh, that, that they are figures that are above politics that kind of are a constant uh, over the course of many years. In the case of the queen, you know, over the course of seventy years, and that they are you know she was someone that the, the British people looked to. Uh, for guidance and stability in times of of uh, you know tumultuous change, and certainly the country, the, the UK right now uh, at a crossroads. It's a big time of change. A new prime minister being sworn in, a new monarch. Um, you know everything going on with the war in Ukraine, the economy not doing great over here. Um, so 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 in times like this, normally I think the nation would have turned to the Queen. She's obviously gone now, so it'll be up to Charles to to fill in those those shoes.
0: And speaking of Charles, he now takes over as king, known as King Charles III. What kind of ruler is he expected to be?
2: So, uh, you know, it, we'll see. Um, uh, I think that the, the, there's excitement about, uh, you know, I think he's he's very prepared. He's had years and years to prepare. Um, he is someone who uh, cares a lot about the uh, environment and, 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 and the climate. So that is something that we might, um, I think, something worth keeping an eye on. There are already, you know, a number of articles coming out about how he might be the climate king. Um, so that's, that's something to, to keep an eye on. But he's also, uh, I think, going to, you know, we're, we're going to see him take on a, a more public role. Uh, we haven't, we, we've He's been in the spotlight for years and years and years, but always kind of in his uh, mother's shadow. So I think he's going to, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what kind of king, king he is. We don't, we don't really know. I don't think he really knows necessarily. Um, and, and he's going to, to, to figure out figure it out probably as he goes.
0: All right, ABC's Inez de la Coutera from London. Thank you so much for your time and insight.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, almost four decades ago, the Queen paid a visit to Seattle. Corwin Haig takes a look back.
1: It happened on March 7, 1983. The Queen and her husband, Prince Philip, arrived in rainy Seattle by plane for a few short hours, having just spent a week in an uncharacteristically rainy California. They're unassuming, but they are impressive. Como radio reporter Mike Hamilton covered part of the royal couple's West Coast swing. He told CBS 8 in San Diego.
3: Their honesty, their frankness, their, um, their friendliness, was,
1: for me, unexpected. The Seattle visit was little noticed by the world press compared to the California trip, during which Queen Elizabeth, 57 at the time, hobnobbed with President and Mrs. Reagan. Here in Seattle, she met with then Mayor Charles Royer and then Washington Governor John Spellman. Elizabeth's royal dignity impressed reporter Hamilton. There's an era there of aristocracy, uh, of
3: aloofness that gets my respect. The Queen has a face, uh, um, this may sound a little melodramatic, but there's a very angelic
1: quality about it, a wonderful smile. While in Seattle, the royal couple rode the monorail and waved to all the friendly commoners who came out to greet them. Later, Seattle area dignitaries met with the Queen privately aboard her royal yacht, the Britannia, which had sailed up the west coast while the royals flew to the northwest. Later, 8,500 people greeted the Queen and Prince Philip at a royal convocation at Heck Edmondson Pavilion, fitted for the occasion with red carpet. Although no tape is available, the Queen reportedly joked at the time about the Pig War, an 1859 conflict between Britain and the San Juan Islands over a stray pig. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio.
0: Now we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, who exactly is running those incendiary ads here in western Washington? We have the answer when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelow. Well, if you had been watching television or listening to the radio the past couple of weeks, you may have heard this ad.
1: You've seen the images. Subway riders pushed onto tracks. Stores looted in broad daylight. Elderly women viciously beaten on the street. Woke prosecutors are releasing dangerous predators before trial. Woke far-left politicians allowing our streets to be overrun with drugs, homelessness, mental illness crime that is from a group called citizens
0: for sanity they have started running ads here not only in washington state and in the seattle market but across the country so who is this group who's behind them and who's funding them joining me now is alex eisenstadt he is with politico and he has looked into this group and has some of those answers and i guess first off who are they what are they trying to accomplish
4: so citizens for sanity is a conservative tax-exempt Dark money nonprofit organization. So, in other words, they're spending money uh, around the country politically, but we don't know who the donors to this group are. And what they're doing is they're spending money targeting what conservatives like to call sort of the woke ideology of the left. So, they're talking about issues like uh, transgender people in sports, and you know that that's one of the big themes that we've seen conservatives uh, latch onto over the last couple of years in an effort to make the Democratic Party and liberals seem out of touch uh, with with where the country, where most people in the country are.
0: Some of these ads are, are quite inflammatory, whether they're on the air or billboards that we've seen in, in some markets. Uh, they're almost using that rather, I guess there's no other way to describe it, but offensive language that you've seen from the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene.
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, look, there's, there's billboard advertisements using messages like, protect pregnant men from climate discrimination and stuff like open the jails, open the borders, close the schools, vote progressive this November. Uh, they're, they're saying things that are kept, you know, sort of latching on to these, these themes that conservatives have put forward over the last couple of years. And the idea is to sort of separate out kind of more moderate mainstream voters from Uh, from Democrats. So these are messages that perhaps could resonate in areas like the suburbs where you have more moderate voters or perhaps in Hispanic heavy areas where uh, you have maybe more moderate voters. And so the overall thrust of this is to make Democrats and the left appear out of touch.
0: And as you heard in that clip of the ad that we played off the top here in Seattle, they're going after the anti-police movement that we've been seeing since the George Floyd protests in in 2020. If you're in Seattle and if you if you remember that summer, we had the CHOP, the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest, which was this sort of chaotic zone where the police department simply withdrew from the area and it just became anarchy before uh, Several weeks later, the police had to come back in and, and and take over that zone. That's been sort of a focal point for the group here. But it seems like they're going more after the social issues nationwide.
3: That's right.
4: And what's important to recognize on the point is that these social issues have kind of come to the forefront in American politics over the last year or two, uh, especially in light of the uh, the George Floyd situation, in light of coronavirus. And so one example of this is in the 2021 Virginia governor's race, and what you had in that race was the Republican candidate, Glenn Youngkin, used with great success uh, sort of overall suburban backlash to coronavirus restrictions, particularly in schools and, and stuff like that. And so that was an issue that, uh, that, that really helped him in that this race. Coincidentally, one of the people who was involved in Virginia at that time, a guy by the name of Ian Pryor, he's a Republican operative, he's now involved in this effort. And so it really shows how social issues are coming to the forefront uh, in politics this election season.
0: So that kind of leads me into my next question. We don't know necessarily who's donating money to these groups, but do we know who's running them?
4: We know that there is an ad maker he used to work for, uh, former Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum. Who's obviously was a conservative, he's involved in this, in crafting these advertisements as well. So this is very much a conservative effort.
0: What are the laws surrounding organizations such as this, such as Citizens for Sanity? Because it's difficult to track where the money's coming from, and, and usually you see at the bottom of most political ads, it's paid for by friends of Patty Murray or friends of Tiffany Smiley, to use two competing candidates in in this state. Uh, But here you you have these these groups with these very strange names and and you don't even have to list the donors.
4: Yeah. So, you know, it it gets complicated, but really uh, a nonprofit group, a tax exempt nonprofit group that doesn't have to disclose its donors has greater restrictions on it in terms of how it can spend its money on politics, in terms of attacking candidates, in terms of Uh, It's it's an investment in explicitly electoral activity, whereas a super PAC, which has to disclose its donors, can go all in and has no restriction on how it engages in electoral and political activity.
0: And so this particular group, Citizens for Sanity, is is more of that nonprofit status. It's not a PAC. Correct. It's a nonprofit dark money group. And how unusual is it to see this sort of inflammatory language on billboards and in ads? Because when you hear them uh, or you see them, they are quite shocking. And and we haven't seen this in the last few election cycles too much.
4: It's unusual to see this kind of uh, inflammatory uh, advertising, to see these kinds of inflammatory advertisements. What's particularly interesting also is, is that there's substantial sums of money being spent on this and in terms of well-produced kind of slickly produced tv ads billboards they're also running ads in newspapers um sort of conservative leaning newspapers and so it tells you that whoever the donors are and again we don't know who they are that they're putting real money into this one other point worth making is that on social media there have been a lot of people who've been tweeting out pictures of these billboards uh and it sort of shows the extent to which it's They've succeeded in catching people's attention.
0: How often does playing these wedge issues work in the get out the vote? Because certainly that's a strategy this time around.
4: Absolutely. I mean, you've seen wedge issues in politics being used in politics for a long time. and Gay marriage has been uh, a wedge issue that's been used for a while. And so we'll see whether transgender sports... Can can move voters. It's something that certainly you're seeing Trump talk about on the trail. It's something that you're seeing some candidates talk on the trip talk about on the trail, and something you're seeing uh, this group talk about a lot.
0: But this is sort of kind of. Counterpunching to what a lot of analysts were saying that the Democrats may be winning the culture war victory during this election cycle, mostly because of motivation following the Dobbs decision.
4: Yeah, look, the, the, the Dobbs decision was certainly something that's had a huge impact on the midterm elections. You're seeing Democrats really capitalize on that to drive out their base voters and to excite their base voters. And, and a lot of the time in midterms election, uh, a midterm election, the party in power in the White House struggles to mobilize their voters. And so this issue, the Dobbs decision, has really helped mobilize Democrats, and it's also really helped them raise a lot of money.
0: And of course, for conservatives, you bring out ads like this for these social issues, and, and they tend to get very motivated as well.
4: Absolutely. And and we're going to see which side is more motivated. In November, of course, we don't know yet exactly which issues are going to mobilize uh, voters in, in terms of things can happen on October in October that really can have an impact on these races. And so it can be a little bit hard to know in the end uh, what's going to be the deciding factor.
0: Alex Eisenstadt with Politico. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks for your time. We have to take another break, but coming up, how to read the polls. Some of the major problems in 2016 and 2020 have been corrected, but still, can we trust them? We'll talk to an expert when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Well, in recent weeks, we have been taking a look at the polls. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke with Stuart Elway, the founder of Elway Research and the director of the Elway Poll. This week, we are talking with David Beiler. He He's a columnist and a data analyst for the Washington Post. And recently, you wrote a column that had three rules for reading the polls. And I guess the first one it's difficult to trust what the polls say because there's a significant margin of error.
5: Right. Uh, This is one of the things that people sort of don't realize about polling. All these polls come with this, you know, dutiful little note that says there's a three to four point margin of error. Um, But that only tracks one source of the statistical error in polls. In reality, polls taken around Labor Day are often off by six or seven points. And that error diminishes and it goes down. But poll averages taken sort of around Election Day are still often off by two to four points. You have situations where, you know, you have a tight race. You have a candidate who's feeling good. They're ahead by three But that's really not a safe margin. You have to get into sort of the mid to high single digits for a candidate to really feel good about their standing.
0: Why is it that there's so much error in in polling? I'm guessing it's a lot more difficult to get a hold of people, a lot more difficult to find people that don't maybe have
5: landlines anymore. Yeah, so there's a few. Uh, One is that only six to seven percent of people who are called uh, will pick up the phone and talk to a pollster. Uh, So sometimes the subset you get is sort of uh, odd people who are willing to take time out of their day to talk to a pollster uh, don't always perfectly reflect the normal voter. Uh, There are some segments of the electorate that have recently just stopped talking to pollsters completely. This was the problem in 2020, that a segment of Trump voters just wouldn't pick up phone calls from anyone uh, with a media or pollster background. And then there's all the traditional sources of error, right? Like between now and Election Day, people can change their minds. Uh, People can decide whether or not they're going to vote. It's a snapshot in time. So you have sort of these confounding factors that uh, make the error larger than that three to four point that you sort of see stamped onto the write-up.
0: You talked about some of the Trump voters in 2020. Here in Washington state, we vote by mail. And election day is more of an election couple of weeks as people drop their ballots off or they mail them in. Uh, We really don't have polling locations. That's got to make things even more difficult.
5: Right. So you have to make sure that your sample... a situation like Washington state, um, your sample has the right mix of people who are voting by mail, the right mix of people who are waiting in person and all these different uses and modes. And you have to make sure of that in, you know, 50 different states if you're doing a national poll. Uh, So it's a little bit tough to figure out exactly who's going to vote. One advantage of the Washington system is that people have their vote locked in. So if you catch someone who voted by mail in your poll and they say, hey, I voted for the Democrat or hey, I voted for the Republican, they're not going to change their mind. So for what it's worth, that's a little bit less on the source of error. But yeah, it's it's just it's just a difficult thing to capture the right ideological mix in the electorate, um, which is why polling is a tough business.
0: What about these close races? Because uh, one of the rules that you wrote in there is that the polls don't Tell us much if it's only a point or two.
5: Yeah. So it's an interesting thing. I calculated kind of win rates. Basically, how often does the person who is ahead in the poll actually win the race? And uh, around Labor Day, it's about 83% of the time. So the polling averages are worth something. Mm -hmm. They can get it right in a lot of races. The problem is, is that when you just confine it to the close ones, to the races where candidates have like a one or two or three point lead, that win rate plummets down to 63 percent so if you're looking at your favorite candidate in some senate race and they've got a one point lead right now that's not that much better than a toss-up it's not that much better than a coin flip uh and even when you get to election day there's still polling error that can knock out a candidate that only has a one or two point lead so the error is very real here especially in the races that people care about the most.
0: So how have things changed since 2016 and 2020 when we had some big misses in the polling industry?
5: Yeah, so in 2016, the solution that everyone talked about was uh, waiting by education, right? So a lot of the polls in 2016 were off because they didn't differentiate between, you know, someone who had a college degree uh, and was living in a suburb and was, you know, affluent, and somebody who was from the same, you know, maybe ethnic group, but didn't have a college degree and was living in a rural area and so on and so forth down the line. That problem is more or less fixed in most polls. The thornier problem showed up in 2020. In 2020, what happened is a significant segment of Trump supporters didn't pick up the phone when a pollster called. Uh, there's a lot of potential you know, reasons for that. Maybe they think that media-backed uh, polls are fake news. Uh, maybe they you know, were just out and about more uh, y- because they weren't thinking about coronavirus restrictions as much in red states. There's a lot of different possible answers. Uh, because these people don't really pick up the phone, you can't quite ask them why they aren't picking up the phone. Uh, so there's a little bit of uh, sort of tautology there. Um, but that problem is something that people are still sort of working on and working out and are afraid will happen in 2022 again, it's not a guarantee because this year, you know, uh, coronavirus restrictions are less than they were in 2020. Um, Democrats are energized by the Dobbs decision. There's confounding factors. But that sort of specter of what pollsters call non-response bias is sort of looming over everything and making everyone uneasy about any forecasts or predictions you might issue.
0: And the final rule that you write about is no party is safe from an election day polling error. For example, a two to four point miss on a blowout may seem like no big deal, but a two to four point miss on a very tight race is a very big deal.
5: Right, exactly. So I uh, went back and I looked at the 2020 polling error. And uh, the interesting thing about it is in a lot of races, there was a two to four point miss. And in a lot of the races it underestimated the republicans and if you look back into past cycles this pattern repeats right in 2016 the polls underestimated the republicans in 2012 they underestimated the democrats Uh, so you have different election cycles where one party sort of systematically gets underestimated or overestimated by the polls and it's hard to know exactly who is gonna uh, get underestimated or overestimated in a given year. Uh, So a lot of people are guessing, oh, the polls are underestimating the Republicans and they'll do better on Election Day. But we're really not going to know that until the votes are cast.
0: But I mean, we have seen a bit of a preview when it came to that vote in Kansas over protecting abortion rights. The pollsters missed that one by a, a long shot.
5: So that's an interesting case because the public polling was few and far between and there was Uh, Some polling that, you know, people sort of poked holes in the methodology and things like that. Uh, Kansas was a surprise in the sense that a lot of people expected a red state just to pass abortion restrictions. The polling was a little bit more equivocal. I think the confounding example is actually 2018. Mm. So in 2018, the polls were really pretty good. Uh, I ran a forecast model that year that was driven by polls and that that source of data kind of nailed it in a lot of races. So you have this situation where people are thinking, oh, 2016 and 2020, the Republicans got underestimated. But then sandwiched right between that is a year when the polls did great. So it's really anybody's guess what happens this year and whether or not the surveys are accurate. You just sort of have to prepare yourself for a decent margin of error, especially in those close races.
0: So bottom line, can we trust the polls this time around? Uh, I'd say a
5: qualified Yes. I mean, the, the thing about polling is that there's not a lot of alternatives. Basically, no other data source does what polling attempts to do, trying to get a real picture of the electorate and track people's movements. So, you know, it has its flaws, but I, I think that it does something that the alternatives don't. So I'd say a qualified yes pay attention but keep that error in the back of your mind
0: all right david byler he's a columnist and data analyst for the washington post thank you so much for your time and insight all right thank you we have to take another quick break but coming up next russia seems to have found an ally for its war in ukraine as millions of tons of military hardware is being supplied by another totalitarian state when the northwest Politicast continues after this Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Here's Kim Shepard.
6: Russia is strengthening ties with North Korea as the war in Ukraine continues to strain Russian resources. Joining us now, ABC's Andy Field. And you've been looking at a recently declassified intelligence report. What have you learned?
7: Well, the the Pentagon's telling us a number of things. One is that It's pretty humiliating for Russia that they're going to have to go hat in hand to North Korea, a nation that they used to supply weapons to, to come and say, hey, we'd like some of those back. Uh, We're kind of running low in our war with Ukraine. Uh, And, of course, North Korea is going to cooperate. They're going to have to buy back some of the stuff. It's not what we'd call state-of-the-art since it's been laying around there for decades, North Korea. But it just goes to show you how devastating this has been to Russia in terms of A, a war that's gone on for months longer than they ever predicted. Uh, Two, that the sanctions have gotten to the point where it's very hard for Russia to get the actual materials to to make new weapons, so they have to go to other countries to do it. And uh, three, how sustainable is this here? How long can they go and go to the wells of North Korea, perhaps China? We don't know if that's happened yet. Uh, Certainly, the U.S. has warned China that there would be consequences if if they're helping uh, Russia in this war. And uh, we're also told that perhaps they'd go to Iran to try to get some of these weapons.
6: So it sounds like this new information is just leading to more questions. One that I have is, how might this impact the conflict in Ukraine?
7: We don't know. Uh, You know, it it seems to have reached kind of a stalemate point, although there are some flashpoints that are just mind-bogglingly dangerous, including the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant where there's shelling going around it and were it to be hit and uh, the nuclear radiation exposed, not only would it expose millions of Europeans in whatever line of wind that radiation goes, but it would also expose Russians to this here. It just seems extraordinarily careless and reckless for the Russians to continue this, but uh, the Russians are in control of the area. Ukrainian scientists are running the plant, but nothing seems to be protecting it from this uh, a, a giant attack and perhaps a, a catastrophe.
6: Yeah, we have those international monitors who are over there now, but have we heard anything much from them?
7: I nothing other than to make this a demilitarized zone. The U.N. condemned all of this today, urged both sides to find some way to meet the middle here. But now it is Ukraine and Vladimir Zelensky who is saying, you know, doesn't really want to negotiate with Russia anymore. Uh, They've actually gotten the upper hand in some of these battles here, and they're trying to push back as hard as they can.
6: Now, the U.S. has had difficult relationships with both Russia and North Korea for quite some time. Is this latest partnership just a case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, or is there something more to their connection between Russia and North Korea?
7: Well, certainly both. Well, Russia is no longer a communist country, at least not, not in writing. It's actually more of a dictatorship where Vladimir Putin, Certainly would love the old communist uh, Russia back here. So they've never really lost that connection here, North Korea, China, China, and Russia, all similar political ideologies. And uh, they seem to be at least wanting to help each other to some point. But China knows better than to look a gift horse in the mouth, and they know that were they to go all out in supporting Russia in this war in Ukraine, that there would be tremendous sanctions leveled against it, not only by the United States, but by European Union countries. And that would dry up a giant part of the market that keeps China afloat. Mm
6: -hmm. Russian President Vladimir Putin also had a message for the West today regarding plans in the EU to cap prices on Russian oil. What did he have to say about that?
7: He said, look, we're going to take our oil and we're going to take our gas and and go play in some other fields. And, And he says there's We can take our markets and make them in Asia and other places that would appreciate what we're sending there. So he's threatening to actually choke off the supply in in Europe, saying, look, the sanctions are hurting us. We'll show you what sanctions look like. We're going to sanction you back.
6: You know, that kind of tit for tat, does that really work in a situation like this? I mean, there are only so many markets around the world where you can sell your oil. At what point has Russia cut off too many of them?
7: We don't know yet. Russia hasn't buckled under the the pressure of these sanctions yet. In fact, I I had a friend who works in the Foreign Service that was uh, in Russia recently and said that everyday life in Russia did not seem much different than it was before all of this started here. Uh, Which really kind of brings to question how much of an effect this is having on Russia.
6: ABC's Andy Field on the Northwest Newsline. Thank you so much.
7: Thank you.
0: And that's Kim Shepard. We have to take another quick break. But when we come back, Labor Day is coming and gone and campaign season is here. We'll do a gut check on the midterms when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Finally this week, a look at how the 2022 midterms are shaping up. Here's Manda Factor.
8: Well, Democrats are not wasting any time post-Labor Day with abortion rights front and center in several key states as we approach the November midterm elections. Let's go to our Northwest Newsline. ABC News political director Rick Klein is with us. Is this expected to be a number one issue or where where are we on abortion rights as far as the midterms are concerned now?
3: Yeah, I think the Democrats are going to put enough money behind it on television to make it the number one issue. I think it's going to be everywhere on television sets and kind of omnipresent in, in campaign messaging around the country. I, I think, look, this was uh, this was something of a gift that was handed to Democrats. It's better sometimes to be on the losing side than the winning side of an issue because it gives you something to campaign against and campaign for. Uh, in this case, um, there's a feeling among Democrats that they they need to seize this, and it's something that can play in a lot of places. I think it cuts both ways in other places, and I think it's there's a degree of of, of risk to uh, to making this your entire campaign strategy but i think by and large um, they, they'd rather be where they're standing right now than on the other side of trying to explain a ruling that a lot of the country just fi- frankly doesn't agree with
8: well president joe biden was uh speaking last night at the democratic national committee in uh, maryland and he was attacking republicans on a number of issues do you expect him to play more into the midterm elections than what we may have thought at the beginning of the year yeah i think that's probably a fair assessment i think
3: people you know, the, you know the approval ratings go up and down i think right now We've got a president who's you know still in the low 40s, which isn't great, but you know can still do some kind of top-level messaging that can be helpful if you're uh, if you're uh, running for office in you know almost anywhere in the country. So I don't think we're talking about someone who's going to be welcome everywhere or that he's going to be uh, you know out in in every state at every time. But uh, I do think we're going to have. Probably more activity to your to your question than than was likely based on the facts a couple of a couple of months ago uh There's a feeling that you know what there's there's something that can get done here and that uh if if the president is out there making a case. That's a that's a good case that to to, to 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 have to have the 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 platform of the presidency.
8: One of the big races we're all watching is the governor's race in Texas. Does Beto O'Rourke have a chance? You
3: know, I don't see him as a top tier contender for for winning at this point. I think there's a lot of people that are skeptical, given the fact that he's run for so many things over the last couple of election cycles. I think there's a lot of a lot of worry about you know is that growing stale right now. Clearly, he's raising a lot of money. Clearly, there's a lot of attention. I know he's getting big crowds almost everywhere he goes in Texas including some redder parts of the of the state but i personally don't see it but you know i've been surprised before and i think he's you know probably as equipped as anyone to to channel some of the the uh, you know the anger and the frustration that's been out there for a long time and try to make it into something.
0: And that's ABC News political director Rick Klein talking with Manda Factor. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Northwest News This Week, Lifebeat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup, thank you for listening, and have a good week.